What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus. To help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. Yeah. Welcome to church. I absolutely love that video. I've seen it a number of times now. I absolutely love it. It just, it feels so good, right? Like, yeah, that's my team. That's what I'm doing. I did that. Uh, The truth is, the, the church has done some amazing, remarkable, God-honoring things in the last 2,000 years. That's the story of the church. Or, or at least that's part of the story of the church. Uh, the truth is, all the things in that video are true, but perhaps maybe there's a few facts that they left out. Uh, for sure, there have been times in history where the church has been a, a bastion of hope and light in the darkness. But there have also been times where the church sat by and watched atrocities happen and did nothing. There have been amazing orphanages and hospitals built and hungry fed, but there's also been forced conversions and crusades and witch burnings and all kinds of horrible things done in the name of Jesus. Even in our own country, our own history as a nation, there were Christian leaders who owned slaves and even used scripture to justify it as God ordained. But it was also Christian men and women leaders who raised up against slavery and ended it in this nation, restoring dignity and humanity to people. So which is the true message of the church? What is the true story of the church? And what about today? Do you think that this image that's presented in this video, which is wonderful, but do you think this is how most people in America view Christianity, view the church? Or is it perhaps a little bit more like this? Let's watch.
video less that one kind of smarts uh, this is again I've, I've seen this video a number of times and and it used to be that you could go to google and actually recreate this or you could put in a and it'll come up with a list and b it's interesting now on google if you go and you say why are christians it dead ends like they have obviously turned that off uh because they, it was not contributing to health but how did we get there how did the church go from being known for all the good that we did, for the things that we were creating and the beauty and the, the education and the, and the good to being known as anti this and anti that and intolerant and the list goes on and on. How did our message change so radically that it's almost unrecognizable? The church is almost unrecognizable as the institution that once did so much good in the world, almost unrecognizable as the body of Christ. Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. We have a major image problem, right? And if it's an image problem, then I think we all know what we need to do. We need to spin it, right? <laughs> we need to pivot. That's what the politicians do. They, when they're asked a question that might make their stance seem bad, they can pivot and talk about the issues that they want to talk about. Maybe we should do that. We can wordsmith stuff so it sounds like we're just for everybody and everything's okay and who are we to judge and then the itch, the image problem goes away, right? I mean, we can hold strong beliefs on social issues and we can hold strong convictions about stuff. We just can't talk about it or let anybody know what we believe. Problem solved. Of course not. The church isn't have just an image problem as followers of christ as followers of god we believe the church is called to be culture shapers light bearers hope bringers and truth tellers and yet given our culture's view of us i think we have to at least ask the question how do we not get in the way of the message of jesus in what way is our message actually obscuring who god is what is our message? We're starting a new series today. We're calling it Messaging. Uh, I think we have the graphic for that. Yes? No? There we go. Ooh, polarized politics. I don't want to talk about that, but that was on the string, so I have to. <laughs> the truth is we're looking at uh, the fact that the church sends messages, whether it's this church or the church globally, sends all kinds of messages about who God is and what it means to be a follower of God. Some of the messages we mean to send and a large number of them we don't. And we're going to be looking at, through the series at the number of different ways in which we send messages. And today, uh, my luck, uh, we're talking about polarized politics. We're talking about the fact that our politics as believers sends a message. Uh, and, and what should that message be? And, and how do we do it in such a way that it doesn't actually do more damage to the cause of Christ than good? Many have said that we live in the most polarized political environment in our nation's history. I have to wonder if Abraham Lincoln would see it that way. There was the Civil War. 
But we are divided as a nation. Um, and this past election, I think, was the clearest demonstration of that divide that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I, I know the old joke, the, the two things you could never discuss at the dinner table are politics and religion. And I think that is absolutely true right now. In fact, my mom and I often joke that it seems that you can't have a substantive conversation about anything without it feeling like you're going political. Uh, because it just it feels like everything has been politicized in our current environment. And the church, I think, has been caught up in that divide. There's a popular perception that all evangelicals are Republican. I'm sure you've heard that. And I know that in this room, I know enough of you to know that that is not necessarily true of this congregation. And I don't think it's true nationally either. And yet all Christians have kind of been lumped into this, this right-wing side. And it's meant that automatically all evangelicals get lumped into one camp. And many Christians have even stopped using the word evangelical altogether to describe themselves. Because they don't want to be pigeonholed. They don't want to, to, to be represented as part of a larger thing. I was dropping my daughter off at school the other day at Nehi, uh, and I saw a bumper sticker on a van that I thought captured it really, really well. This is not a political statement, but I love Jesus, I love the Bible, I love you, and I didn't vote for Trump. <laughs> Clearly, this person wants to send a message that just because she loves Jesus, just because she's part of the church, that doesn't mean that you can necessarily know exactly what predictable way she was going to vote or what party she was going to vote for. It is a tricky culture right now that we live in in order to actually communicate these values. How do we feel strongly about things? How do we feel like we need to express what we believe is called out on us as people of God and do that in a political, political environment, but do it in a way that doesn't jeopardize the message of Christ? Well, I think it's helpful, as we always do. We love scripture here. In fact, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's Bibles at the tables in the front and the back. We think it is the source for conduct. And so we're going to look today briefly at the life of Jesus, at the politics of Jesus. How did he, in his environment, respond politically? Certainly, we live in a polarized political environment. But if you look at the political landscape of the first century, you'll see that it was also very political. And this was the context into which God chose to take on flesh. The political environment that Jesus chose to enter into and the ways in which he engaged it politically. Israel, as I'm sure you know, had been for years fought over by the superpowers of the ancient Near Eastern world. Everyone wanted Israel. And now it was Rome's turn. And the, the Roman armies had come through and they had, they had raped and killed and and, and pillaged and all these different things all the way through Israel, killing entire communities and enslaving entire communities and, and just doing horrible things, burning villages. And so these rebel factions were popping up all over Israel and Galilee, the birthplace of Jesus was actually the hotbed. It was the central point from which a lot of these rebellious factions were raising up around 52 BC, the city of Magdala, from, from where we believe Mary Magdalene came. A few miles from Nazareth was destroyed and tens of thousands of Jewish people were enslaved, taken to be slaves. Jewish historian Josephus reported that in 4 BC, the Romans, in one event of retaliation from these rebel uprise, uh, uprisings, in one event of retali retaliation, burned a bunch of cities and scoured the hills looking for rebels and crucified 2,000 rebels at one time. Josephus reports that 500 people a day were being killed. He says space could not be found for the crosses, 
nor crosses for the body. The city of Sepphoris, which is largely believed to be the birthplace of Jesus' mother Mary, and which was also about five miles uh, from Nazareth, was a city that was built largely on the backs of these Galilean slaves. As they were rebuilding the city that Rome had burned down. In fact, it's been speculated that Jesus and his father Joseph, uh, as craftsmen, as carpenters, may have been, probably were enlisted in what would have been the largest restoration project in the community. They, they were almost certainly pulled in to working this site. That is the context, the political context into which God chose to incarnate, where God chose to take on flesh. Remember that opening line of the Christmas story that we read from Luke every year. It sounds so quaint and charming. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. They weren't making a phone book. They're taking a census of the whole land so that all of the occupants of these lands could be cataloged so that every single individual could be taxed and pay a tribute to Caesar. They were forced to pay a tribute to Caesar. And in Galilee was a political hotbed of rebellion. This was the political context into which Jesus was born. And I think there's a note in that of all the different times throughout all of creation, throughout all of history, of all the times that God chose to become man, it was during this unique and brutal time. It's worth noting. Shane Claiborne, in his book, Jesus for President, which is a great book. You should read it. I don't agree with all of it. You won't either. But there's some really good stuff in there. He says this. Trying to understand Jesus and his execution without understanding his context is like trying to understand Martin Luther King without learning about the Montgomery bus boycott, Jim Crow laws, and the war in Vietnam. The area where Jesus was born, the northern regions of Galilee, was the hub of many anti-imperial uprisings. It was super polarized, way more than what we're seeing in the United States today. Jews were forming these violent militias as uprisings, as, as guerrilla white warfare. One of the groups was called the Zealots, and they were like these guerrilla warfare, these uh, you know, kind of violent extremists. You might remember that one of Jesus' disciples, one of the 12 that he chose, was called Simon the Zealot. Exactly. So according to scripture, Jesus surrounded himself with some of these violent extremists who were trying to, through power and subversion, overthrow the government. The Sicarii, a more intellectual and elite brand of Jewish freedom fighters, were nonetheless just as violent. They would, cat, they would kidnap like officials and, and these important high-profile people and then assassinate them, kill them to make a statement. It's why they believe that Judas Iscariot came from this order. Once again, Jesus surrounding himself with revolutionaries, with violent extremists, people who look more like terrorists to us today than disciples. Other Jews became Jewish collaborators with Rome, serving as government officials. Herod, who we know from the, again from the Christmas story, was half Jewish, and he was in league with Roman, with the Romans. He basically took a job so that he could be king. And when he saw that, that he had heard that this king of the Jews had been born, he killed thousands of Jewish babies to protect his own political power. But not all of them became rulers. Some of the Jewish collaborators served in lower offices like tax collectors, collecting from their Jewish brothers and sisters exorbitant tribute taxes for Caesar and imprisoning them if they didn't pay. 
These Roman collaborators were the most hated of the Jews. They were selling their brothers and sisters out. It's not unlike in World War II. There are stories of Jews who actually pay, were paid to sell out their brothers and sisters to the Nazis. It's a rough comparison, but it's kind of like that. I mean, these, this was an oppressive, evil, brutal regime. And Jews were collecting money from others to pay for it. See, this tribute tax is more than just a heavy tax on a people that were already poor. It was way more than that. The tax, you see, had to be paid in Roman currency using Roman coins. And those coins themselves would have been an abomination, would have been a blasphemous thing for the Jewish people. The, the coins themselves had a picture of Caesar on it. Much like our money has a picture of former presidents or great leaders in our, in our nation's history, theirs had a picture of Caesar, and it had an inscription. Ours says, in God we trust, in e pluribus unum. Theirs said, long live the son of God. Theirs claimed that Caesar was the son of God, that he was deity. So to even be in possession of that for a devout Jew would have been blasphemous. And it was the currency that was forced upon them. And this exorbitant blasphemous tax was going to fund the very army, the very empire that was killing them. And Rome was employing Jewish tax collectors to collect that tax. But you know, it's weird. Along with those violent extremists that Jesus recruited to be a part of his movement, part of his 12, Jesus recruited Matthew, sometimes called Levi, who was also one of his 12. This, this man who had sold his soul to Rome, this man who was a part of the problem, the enemy, the scum, the Roman collaborator, along with a zealot and a Sakari. I have to think that made for some fun political conversations around the dinner table. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples had their own stories of living as subjugated people. It's almost like Jesus, in response to this hyper-polarized political environment, intentionally chose to choose people from many different streams, many different views, many different political parties, and he brought them together. He invited them out of the systems that they were trying to use to create change. And he invited them into his system, into his kingdom. He invited them out of their attempts to change the world politically, whether by violence or coercion or collusion or power grabbing. And he invited them into a whole new kingdom, the kingdom of God, with a whole different politic. And then he spent his entire ministry teaching and preaching and proclaiming this good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. He invited these disciples and the people around him to employ their energies, not in fighting the systems of this world and the kingdoms of this world, even though they were evil and blasphemous. And instead, to take those same energies and build into his kingdom, into his politics, not through violence and coercion and collusion and power, but through serving and loving and ultimately by giving his life. But back to those coins for a minute, back to those taxes for a minute. This would have been a major sticking point for Jews. And many went underground and actually refused to pay this tax. It was one of the ways that they could rebel, that they could revolt against this tax. They actually began minting their own coins, creating their own coins. And rather than having the picture of Caesar on the coin, they had a picture of what would, had become for them a symbol of their revolution, a symbol of their resistance. 
Their coin had the picture of a palm branch because the revolutionaries would wave palm branches as a sign of their allegiance to one another, as a sign of their silent revolt. It gives kind of a different understanding to that whole Palm Sunday thing that we celebrated. They believed that they couldn't pay tribute to Caesar and they refused to call any man master and they owed exclusive loyalty to God. They would not pledge allegiance to anyone but to God. And they believed you could not pledge allegiance to both God and state. And so it's in that context that we get one of Jesus's many teachings on politics. But it's not necessarily always taught as a, a teaching on politics. Let's read it together from Mark 12. Later, the religious leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. So it's interesting. The religious leaders are upset with Jesus. And so they reach out to these two political parties that are so polarized. You can see it there. It's subtle. But the Pharisees, the first one up here, they were actually opponents to Rome. They had fought against Rome. They were opposing all things Roman. And the supporters of Herod, of course, were the Roman collaborators. They were the scum. They were the bad guys. But here, the religious leaders have brought them together to try to draw Jesus into the political battle. Let's keep reading. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? You're impartial and you don't play favorites. But we want you to pick a party. We're baiting him. They were baiting him to try to use the political, political infrastructure to affect change. This is an overtly political question. What they're really asking him could be interpreted as something like this. We all agree that Rome is evil and has to go, right? You claim to be the Messiah who's going to free God's people, which is a political military understanding should we engage in this public protest this revolution against rome and not pay this abomination tax that's being used to murder and rape and enslave our people it's a good tactic on their part they know that they've got him in a pinch i mean the followers of herod the the roman collaborators are right there and if jesus says viva la revolution he's done they can arrest him right there on the spot In fact, that's exactly what they're going to later accuse him of in his trial before Pilate. You might remember from Luke 23, it says this. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government. And by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. It's all political language. So back to this, this conversation he's having with the Pharisees and the followers of Herod. Jesus can't then just say that they shouldn't pay their taxes. And the religious, the religious leaders are there as well, the Pharisees. And if Jesus says, blaspheme God and pay the abomination tax, he knows that he loses all credibility with the devout Jews. So think of some of the ways that Jesus could have responded. He could have responded with something like, you know, this is really a matter between you and God. I know what I think, but each of us has to come up with our own conclusions. What do you think you should do? That sounds like a very 21st century response, right? 
But Jesus didn't come to lead a self-help spirituality course. He came to speak truth. He could have said, you know what, you're right, and I'm just waiting for my moment to rise up and lead the rebellion, and then watch out, Rome. But he didn't. Jesus didn't come to lead a violent revolution. He came, in fact, to offer his own life. He could have said, someday I'm going to devise a better, fuller system of governance called representative democracy. And then we can establish a government where we can legislate people's behavior. But Jesus didn't come to establish a new form of government. He came to inaugurate the kingdom of God into this world. And it's a whole new kind of kingdom. And so Jesus responds, and I think oftentimes we look at this and we point to this as just amazing rhetorical speech. It almost sounds like Jesus is doing the spin thing, the pivoting thing, but I think it's so much more than that. I think in this next statement, Jesus basically summarizes his view of how we should respond politically. Let's read. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Give me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? So we're talking about the image of Caesar, son of God. Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And they were amazed at him. He calls them hypocrites. He knows. He sees right through this. He knows that this is not a, a pious question. They are primarily concerned about whether or not God is being blasphemed. This is a political question, and they're trying to bait him in. And so I think, in part, he's saying, you know what? Yeah, give back to Caesar his property, his cute little coins with his picture on them. Let him think that he's in charge. That's absolutely fine. His image is stamped on the coin. But God's image is stamped on you. The God who created Caesar and created all things says that you are his so give to God what is God's. God has called you sons of God and daughters of God. God has appointed you to be his kingdom in this world. Give Caesar his coin. Give government their due. They aren't the real rulers God is. They aren't the hope of the world God is. So yes, it is a commentary uh, on Caesar and a commentary on uh, empire building, if you will. But I think more than that, he's actually speaking to the rebels and to the conspirators. And he's saying, you know what? You are playing the same games that Rome is. You are using the same systems to try to accomplish change that, that Rome is. Ultimately, you're not as good at it, but you're doing the same things that they are. You're trying to fight the system and game the system to advance your cause. You're trying to use political power to accomplish what political power never will. Jesus didn't come to establish a government. He came to establish his church. And I think that's the primary message that we need to take away from this in our 21st century context. Yes, give Caesar what is Caesar's. We live in a democracy and have a civic responsibility to be engaged in that process. By all means, give Caesar what's Caesar's. But the greater concern is that we give God what's God's. And that's you. That's your life, your hope, your trust. Jesus could have chosen to come at any time in history in any way that he wanted. He could have come in power and glory. He could have come with an army of angels. He could have come in and toppled any and every empire. He could have come in and been the political leader that Israel and the whole world longed for. But he didn't. He chose 
instead to come to one of the most brutal, unjust times in Israel's history while they were being ruled and oppressed by one of the most evil empires the world has ever known, led by a man who claimed to be God. If ever there was a good time for God to come in and overthrow a government, that was it. But he didn't. Jesus could have, with a word, in an instant acted politically, but he didn't. He was born into a subjugated community to subjugated parents, was raised among political dissidents and those who sought to overthrow the government and use power to accomplish their values. And to that he spoke peace. To that he spoke love. To that he spoke self-sacrifice. healing and freedom to that. He modeled not power or might or prestige, but a servant's heart. He didn't try to legislate his values. He simply lived them. Do we, what if we, as the church in America stopped trying to legislate our values and instead chose to embody values. Let me say that again. What if we as the church in America stop trying so hard to legislate our values and instead try to embody our values? What would that look like? What would our values embodied look like? Well, I think it would look a lot like that first video we watched, frankly. I think it would, I think it would look a lot like hospitals being built, not legislation about healthcare. I think it would look like orphanages and schools and hospitals and caring for the sick. I think it would be us stopping whatever bickering we're doing about social welfare and those sorts of things and simply rolling up our sleeves and helping the poor, feeding the hungry, serving the prisoner. I love our nation. I love, I love America. I love democracy and the fact that we can and should have a role in shaping our nation's government and choosing men and women who will reflect our values in government. But here's the rub. I think for many of us, myself included, I think we think that our role stops there. Like if we can just vote for the right person or vote to keep the wrong person out, that somehow we've done our part and we can then armchair quarterback and say, I told you so. When things don't work out the way we thought they should, we can blame the Democrats or the Republicans or the bureaucracy or the Washington politics or the media. There's lots of places that we can deny something deniability, plausible deniability. Shouldn't have gone there. It's not in my notes. (laughs) But I, I think we need to look at ourselves. I think we need to look at ourselves. We shouldn't ask the government to do what God has commissioned the church to be. We shouldn't ask the government to do what God has commissioned the church to be. And I think there's safe subjects. You know, I think all of us are probably comfortable talking about the need for orphanages and feeding the hungry and the poor, but there are very unsafe subjects as well. Let's just go there for a minute. Cause I haven't made us uncomfortable enough yet. That's like one of the issues that evangelicals have been known for and derided for holding for the last several decades. For 43 years, the evangelical church in America has tried to change Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal. For 43 years, the church has every four years elected and voted for, sometimes exclusively, on this issue. And in those 43 years, the church has become known as anti-women, anti-choice, anti-science, and ultimately it hasn't affected any change in policy at all. 
we still have some of the most, the broadest reproductive rights in the world. It could be argued, therefore, that legislating our values hasn't worked. In fact, its greatest impact was probably costing us our witness to a hurting world. What would embodied values look like on this issue? Imagine for a moment, just go with me on this. Imagine with me for a moment that there was absolutely no way we could change any laws about this. What if the only impact we could have was to be embody our values, whatever those values are, embody those values into that situation? What would that look like? I think it would look like us caring for poor mothers, for young mothers who feel like they don't have a choice who come from broken systems and cycles of pain and don't want to see that cycle continue. I think it would look like building and staffing amazing crisis pregnancy centers. I think it might look like Christian families willing to take unwanted children or even take in mothers who are in these situations, support them and love them and come alongside of them. I think it would perhaps look like us finding creative and beautiful ways to express that the sanctity of life goes way beyond simply preventing abortion, but helping kids and families in crisis to find life and to break that cycle. But for many, myself included, it's easier to vote. I feel like we've done our part. I think you you could do the same exercise, this idea with any of these sort of hot button topics that are in the news and, and that for many of you, I think, keep you up at night. For instance, immigration, this whole idea of, of refugees that have been, uh, you know, coming to our nation and coming to Europe, and it's all over the news, and, and it's been debated and fought in kitchens and congregations and courtrooms around the country. And I got to say, mostly I hear Christians arguing from a place of fear, for security, for jobs, for our way of life. I hear a lot of political rhetoric and very little biblical application. I think we quickly get lost. We get caught up in the debate. We pick a side. We jump on a bandwagon politically. And our message, the message that we're sending to the culture around us is written for us by politicians on both ends of the spectrum, by media on both ends of the spectrum. We can't let them tell our story. We need to be the ones that tell our story. So what I'm suggesting, and I know that it's complicated, I'm suggesting that embodiment in this situation might be that we take it a very different angle. What if we took the time to really dig into what the Bible has to say on this subject so that we could form biblically informed values on this, not politically informed, not historically informed, not fear formed, not patriotically formed, but biblically formed values. Then what if instead of trying to get the politicians to enforce our values, we found creative ways to embody those biblical values? I think at the very least, we need to be willing to look at ourselves and ask the question, on what grounds do the values that I hold, let me say that again, on what grounds have I formed these values that I hold? I think all of us probably have strong feelings on some of these issues. Where are those feelings based? And then having done that work, having been biblical and creative, then yes, engage politically because politics is one of the great tools that we have to accomplish change in this world. But it's just one tool. It's not the only tool. It's not the best tool. So yes, vote, but do it as a reflection of the values that you are already actively living out and embodying. 
I need to say as well, this is not about us compromising on our standards or compromising on our beliefs or on our values. In fact, I would argue that relying on the government or any agency, any organization to do these things for us is actually putting those things at much greater risk. Don't ask the government to do what the church was commissioned to be. There's another great quote from that book that I, I quoted earlier, the Shane Claiborne. I want to read it again. It's easy to have political views. That's what politicians do. But it's much harder to embody a political alternative. That's what saints do. The greater challenge is right living, not merely right thinking. In Jesus, we meet not a presentation of ideas or a new political platform, but an invitation to join up, to become part of a movement of a people that embodies good news. Political embodiment means that we become the change that we want in the world not just lobby politicians to change things for us. It means that we must take the responsibility that our political views demand of us. If these are things we really value, if these are really our political views on some of these issues, then we have to ask, what does that then demand of us? What might that look like if we were actually able to do this, if we were actually able to embody these values? I think it begins to look like the early church. The church that in 300 and something AD built the first hospitals and orphanages and schools and universities that accomplished so much good in this world. There was another emperor 300 years after the death of Christ, Emperor Julian, who was the last pagan ruler of the Roman Empire and who wanted all of the empire to worship the Roman gods observed this about the same, the very same Galileans who had once been his most vicious rebel fighters. Those godless Galileans, he calls them godless because they don't worship the Roman gods. Those godless Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. The message of the Galileans had changed. They went from trying to change the world politically and violently, coercively, to loving radically of feeding not only their own, but feeding those outside of their fold and the world noticed the empire noticed. And Julian was the last pagan empire emperor. It changed the world. Jesus's invitation to us is to join up to change the world, not by means of politics, but by entering into his kingdom and living that kingdom now. In this world, when we do that, the message of the church is clear. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, this idea of, of how do we engage politically, um, that is not something historically that has united us as a church. It's been something that has divided us. It's part of even why the perception that we are so divided is held outside of these walls. God, I pray that this would not divide us the Holy Spirit, that you would speak, that you would illuminate truths in us of what it is that you are calling us to. We want your values. We want your kingdom. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in this world and in this kingdom as it is in heaven. And we desperately want to figure out how to come alongside of you in that, to serve faithfully in that, to put our trust not in the government, not in any systems, but in you. Help us to know what that means and help us to live it out. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.